helping Marines in dress uniform pull back gilded doors to reveal re-election candidate Trump as he approaches the lectern. If that looks familiar, you saw it in Kazakhstan. Uh, wow. And the 95% maskless crowd also revealed another plank of the hidden Republican platform, namely that obedience to the whims and dictates of the ruler are to take precedence over logic, medicine, facts, science, and compassion, even at the cost of one's health or one's life. And I'm reminded of the movie Death of Stalin, in which Stalin's sycophants are so afraid of Stalin, of his cult of autocracy and of each other, that they deny for an absurd amount of time that Stalin's corpse is indeed dead. And here we have a group of power-hungry people playing Russian roulette, if you'll forgive me, with a dead virus for the same reason. Mm. And another plank of the invisible platform is, of course, the coronavirus pandemic is not to be mentioned or acknowledged as an ongoing threat. 180,000 dead Americans are not to be mourned or honored, and the ongoing slaughter is to be covered up. That and the fact that it is taxed BIPOC primarily. And the exception to that silence was the president's almost estranged wife, Melania, who bizarrely dressed as if she had dug up the grave of Augusto Pinochet and altered his uniform to sit. I really don't care for her little fashion messages, do you? Yeah. Teresa, wow, what a great comment to end on. Unfortunately, we're we're out of time. I wish we could continue this discussion because uh, you all are fabulous. Uh, Teresa, Althea, Michael, and Yvonne, I want to thank you so much for joining us for this wonderful discussion. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks, Annette. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Sonia. Everybody get out there. Thank you. From the studios of KPFK Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is Rising Up with Sonali, and I'm your host, Sonali Kolhatkar. We're online at risingupwithsonali.com. In today's news headlines, the final night of the Republican National Convention took place Thursday at the White House in Washington, D.C., the first time a sitting president used the taxpayer-funded building as a visual backdrop for a partisan election campaign giving a rambling and largely scripted address that was filled with lies and ran about 70 minutes long before a mostly maskless crowd of about 1,500 people, Trump made multiple gaffes, including saying, I profoundly accept this nomination instead of proudly. I profoundly accept this nomination for President of the United States. Gloating over the impropriety of holding the event at the White House, Trump slammed Democrats, saying this. This November, we must turn the page forever on this failed political class. The fact is, I'm here. What's the name of that building? But I'll say it differently. The fact is, we're here, and they're not. <laughs> to me, one of the most beautiful buildings anywhere in the world, and it's not a building, it's a home, as far as I'm concerned. Not even a house, it's a home. That's Trump on Thursday night, the final night of the RNC at the White House, where he claimed that the taxpayer-funded residence was his home rather than a temporary residence for elected presidents. Walter Schaub, former director of the United States Office of Government Ethics, who had resigned in protest of Trump's overstepping, tweeted, quote, This abomination may be the most visible misuse of official position for private gain in America's history. It is an abuse of the power entrusted to this man, the breach of a sacred trust. It is the civic equivalent of a mortal sin, maybe a religious one, too. 
The New York Times described Trump's speech as, quote, a crusade against left-wing ideology and violent social disorder fought against the backdrop of a virus that Republicans largely described as a temporary handicap on the economy. The Washington Post fact-checked 25 false claims, calling Trump's address a, quote, tidal wave of tall tales, false claims and revisionist history. Much of the speech was largely focused on claiming that the current unrest over racial injustices are a preview of the America that his rival Joe Biden would usher in. Trump and others failed to acknowledge that the current unrest is unfolding under Trump's rule. He painted a dark picture of nationwide demonstrations and lamented the fact that he needed mayor's permissions to send federal troops into cities. There is violence and danger in the streets of many Democrat-run cities throughout America. This problem could easily be fixed if they wanted to. Just call. We're ready to go in. We'll take care of your problem in a matter of hours. Just call. We have to wait for the call. It's too bad we have to, but we have to wait for the call. Trump's personal lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, who's been implicated in numerous crimes, also spoke on Thursday with no hint of irony about the importance of law and order and also echoed the claim that violence in American cities were what Biden would usher in. These continuous riots in Democratic cities gives you a good view of the future under Biden. Giuliani also made far-fetched claims of Trump's work ethic. President Trump with his boundless love of our country and all our people, his disciplined work ethic, his exceptional ability to inspire, and his deep understanding of our system of government and the strength of American values is the man we can trust to preserve and even improve our way of life. Outside the White House, a large mass of protesters gathered and attempted to drown out Trump's nomination acceptance speech. And while GOP Senator Rand Paul, protected by security guards and police, walked through the crowds of activists toward the White House, he was surrounded by people demanding justice for the police killing of Breonna Taylor, who was killed in Louisville in the state of Kentucky, which he represents. On Friday, Rand Paul spoke with Fox News and implied that the activists would have killed him. He said if it weren't for the police, quote, I don't think we'd have survived. None of the protesters appeared armed. Meanwhile, a new report shows that white supremacists and armed militias have infiltrated police departments across the U.S. The report by the Brennan Center for Justice was authored by Michael German, a former FBI special agent. Thousands of people gathered in D.C. at the Lincoln Memorial on Friday to mark the 57th anniversary of Dr. Martin Luther King's March on Washington, where he gave his most famous speech titled, I Have a Dream. Crowds of people gathered, largely wearing masks and separating in socially distanced groups. The march's organizers say that were it not for the coronavirus pandemic, they would have seen an even larger gathering. The event was titled the Get Your Knee Off Our Necks March on Washington. Democratic vice presidential nominee Kamala Harris addressed marchers in a taped speech. The road ahead, it is not going to be easy. But if we work together to challenge every instinct our nation has to return to the status quo, and combine the wisdom of longtime warriors for justice with the creative energy of the young leaders today, we have an opportunity to make history right here and right now. That's an excerpt of a taped speech by California Senator Kamala Harris to Friday's March on Washington commemorating the 57th anniversary of Dr. King's I Have a Dream speech. Late on Thursday, a coalition of more than 350 faith leaders endorsed the Democratic ticket of Joe Biden for president, saying there was, quote, a need for moral leadership and, quote, hope for a better future. Also on Thursday, news broke of an investigation into a right-wing organization's robocalls to black voters, warning them against voting by mail.
Protests continue in Kenosha, Wisconsin, where police shot a black man named Jacob Blake in the back, leaving him paralyzed. And a 17-year-old heavily armed white boy who idolizes police killed two white activists with Black Lives Matter. The two victims have been identified as Anthony Huber and Joseph Rosenbaum. Jacob Blake Sr., the father of the police shooting victim, spoke to CNN and described how his son was fighting for his life while laying shackled to his hospital bed. Then his next question was, uh, why did they shoot me so many times? And I said, baby, they weren't supposed to shoot you at all. You know, he's paralyzed from the waist down. Why do they have that cold steel on my my son's ankle? He 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 can't get up. He couldn't get up if he wanted to. So what what was that's a little overkill to have him shackled to the bed? I just, that just makes no sense to me. That's Jacob Blake's father describing how his son remains shackled to his hospital bed while he recovers from a grisly police shooting that has left him paralyzed. Meanwhile, Kyle Rittenhouse, who has been arrested for the shooting deaths of Huber and Rosenbaum at the protest against Blake's shooting, has now been charged with multiple felonies. The six felony charges include first-degree reckless homicide, first-degree intentional homicide, and attempted first-degree intentional homicide. The police officer that shot Blake remains free. And that does it for our headlines today. We'll be back with the rest of the show after this break. KPFK Pacifica Radio, this is Rising Up with Sonali, and I'm your host, Sonali Kolhatkar. You can watch this program on Free Speech TV and listen to it on Pacifica Radio stations and affiliates nationwide. Hurricane Laura slammed into the state of Louisiana, just as the Republican National Convention was putting on a showcase about President Donald Trump's agenda. The Category 4 storm was the most powerful to hit the state in a century and killed at least six people. It made landfall at 150 miles per hour in Cameron Parish on Thursday, with the Lake Charles area being hardest hit. Some buildings were reduced to rubble, others lost their entire roof. The most terrifying aspect of the hurricane was that it hit an area studded with oil, gas and chemical plants. And in fact, one chemical factory in Lake Charles was destroyed with a large fire potentially releasing toxic chemicals into the air. We go now to Louisiana to speak with Anne Rolfes. She is the founding director of the Louisiana Bucket Brigade. Welcome to the program, Anne. Thank you. Now, you, you and your organization have been for years pointing out the dangers of climate change um, colliding with the oil and gas industry and chemical industry in the Gulf Coast and Louisiana region. Um, what has happened in uh, Louisiana right now with this massive hurricane? Some are saying that the state actually dodged a bullet because it spared the worst uh, or the most densely um, packed area with oil and gas uh, plants, and it could have been much worse. That's true. I think it, if it had been just 15 miles uh, more to the east, it might have devastated not only more of the oil and gas and chemical facilities, but also the town of Lake Charles. As it is, the town was you know, badly, badly uh, damaged. I don't think residents will be able to move back there for a month or so, if not longer than that. Electricity is out. The water is out. Um, and then there is, of course, always the complicating factor of accidents from the petrochemical industry. So what happened with the chemical fire in question? There's some dramatic aerial footage of the fire, massive plumes of smoke and clouds of you know, uh, smoke that could be carrying chemicals with it. Do we know what sort of chemical plant it was? What sort of chemicals might have been released into the air? 
Yes, it was chlorine gas, which is quite wow. dangerous. It, it damages your lungs. And, and once you're exposed in that way, you know, you never actually recover. And so it was serious. And, and I think when you see what the state of Louisiana's response was, you get a pretty good idea of how ill-prepared we are to handle this situation. And this was our response. Uh, this, the Department of Environmental Quality and our governor directed people to do what's called shelter in place. So imagine it's August in hot and steamy Louisiana, temperatures in the 90s, and you are directed by your government leaders to close your doors and windows and turn off your air conditioning. Not only is that very uncomfortable, it's also dangerous to people's health in a lot of cases. Um, and so, you know, this ridiculous response shows you how ill-equipped we are to, to really help people with situations like this that we know are coming. The second, the second illustration of our Department of Environmental Quality is that the spokesperson said that they went and, and monitored the air, but that they didn't detect anything. Now, this fire raged, as we all saw from the photographs, for eight to 10 hours, right? There were plumes of smoke in the air. And the idea that our Department of Environmental Quality wasn't able to detect anything in the air tells you all you need to know about their ability to protect us. And that has been the case in the Gulf Coast around um, oil and gas and chemical facilities. If we think of the BP spill, it's a combination of what seems like corporate um, negligence and government lax government regulation that together those two forces create disasters in waiting. Absolutely. And it's and you pointed out something very important that they really work together. And what we're pointing out right now is something that we hope we can learn from Hurricane Laura to prevent the construction of additional oil and gas and chemical facilities. In our state, which as you know, and, and your, your people who, who watch this program and listen to it know, Louisiana is the poster child for, for being in the bullseye of hurricanes and storms. And yet the petrochemical industry and our government have a plan to build 111 or expand 111 build and expand 111 facilities here in Louisiana in the next decade. In the area that was in the bullseye for Hurricane Laura, they're planning to build significant number of liquefied natural gas terminals. And of course, our message is that none of this should be built. It, it's crazy to build in a danger zone like this. So this is an area that has already been struggling with um, hurricanes and you have these chemical factories, these oil and gas factories, even setting aside the hurricanes though, isn't there very severe pollution that residents of these areas face that I know your organization has spent years fighting against? Yeah, absolutely. The, the facility that had the accident during Hurricane Laura is called Biolab. And it reported to the Environmental Protection Agency that it released 21,000 pounds of chlorine last year. And, and that's what they, they self-reported. So as, as you can imagine, the actual releases were much worse. It's no secret that those of us here in Louisiana, especially black communities, bear a, a significant burden of pollution. And it's why, of course, we're calling to pivot to a different kind of economy, one that would rely on renewable energy if we had had windmills and solar panels in the path of the hurricane, of course, there would be no aftermath. And then, of course, you have an area that's hurricane prone that's now being hit by stronger and stronger hurricanes because of climate change that gets exacerbated by the very industries that are studied throughout the landscape that the hurricanes hit. I mean, the interrelations here are stunning. Yes. Yeah, I mean, the, the irony that, that they both cause, cause and cause climate change, and also they have made us vulnerable to flooding because they have carved, the oil industry has carved up our coast to lay its pipelines and, and to create navigation canals. And so we really have a double whammy when it comes to the oil and gas industries creating climate change and creating vulnerability to storms. Look, you know, the industry started in this state 100 years ago and it was something that was viable, maybe for the first 50 years. But for the last half century, it's done us wrong. And again, it's why we're calling to pivot. I think when you talk to younger people in this state, they're very clear that the oil and gas industry may have had its place, but it's time for it to move on, to retire, 
and we, sh we need to embrace different kind of industries that can provide good and safe jobs. Are there links being made between the ferocity of these hurricanes and climate change as far as you can see in the media? I mean, for Hurricane Laura to be described as the fiercest uh, hurricane in a century. I mean, initially it was being compared to Hurricane Katrina, but it seems as though it was much um, larger, more powerful than that. And it only escaped doing the kind of damage that Katrina did because it didn't, you know, because it, it, it didn't hit in the worst possible place. But it, that could change next year or even within the next month. We know that a hurricane could hit us at any time. And, and in regard to the media, really people don't report the connections between a storm like this and the fact that our state continues to permit oil and gas and, and greenhouse gas emissions. It, it's really unbelievable that at this moment, right, when we just got whammed by Hurricane Laura, our governor has greenlighted Formosa Plastics, which would be the largest new source of greenhouse gases in the nation. And so the dissonance is pretty extreme as is the fact that industry in times like this absolutely acts like the victim. They'll say that their accidents are because there was an act of God that was unavoidable. Of course, it's all avoidable. We need to transition away from these petrochemicals. And we're happy and proud that here in Louisiana, we have a strong movement uh, toward achieving that goal. Tell me more about the Formosa uh, plant. This is a long-standing uh, fight between residents of the area and the uh, company. I'm assuming under the has the Trump administration opened the door much more so than previous administrations, or are they about are they about the same? Well, I think we know that both parties are are pretty bad on climate and the environment, and I think that we also know that Trump is even worse. So at the beginning of the pandemic. He signed an order, had his environmental protection signed an order, relaxing enforcement of oversight, which is ridiculous. It's something that the American Petroleum Institute had asked him for and that Trump did only six days after being asked. I mean, what kind of community member here who's being polluted has that sort of access to the levers of our federal government? And so certainly it is worse under Trump. What's happening here is that Formosa Plastics wants to build one of the world's largest plastics plants uh, in a black community. And, and it would effectively wipe this historic community. It's called St. James. It was founded during the days of emancipation after the people had fought for and won their freedom. So you have a free town, which has survived in the centuries since emancipation, all the violence, all the targeting here in the deep South. And yet what threatens now to wipe it off the map is Formosa Plastics, is the petrochemical industry. There are the graves of enslaved people on the proposed site. The community has certainly, has certainly cleaved to those graves as a rallying cry. And we feel like we're making progress and that we will stop Formosa Plastics. But I tell you, it's a fight. So uh, also, what sort of damage do you foresee on such a plant in a climate catastrophe future, which is you know, what we're basically apparently already in right now. If such a plant were to be built and then hit by a hurricane, the kind of environmental damage would be, I imagine, quite devastating. Well, yeah, I mean, we can't, we can't live here. We couldn't live here. We're already just hanging on by our fingernails. And so when you continue to, as Formosa Plastics would do, destroy wetlands, just, you know, everybody knows here in Louisiana that wetlands help us in storms, they absorb the water, they act as a buffer. And yet repeatedly, our state allows companies like Formosa Plastics to come in and destroy wetlands, if you can imagine, fill them in, put concrete over them to build ridiculous things like one of the largest plastics plant in the world. Again, it's why you know, we are, are working hard to push for different kinds of industries uh, and, and push back against this real dissonance that our state has. I mean, on the one hand, we're worried about hurricanes and worried about our survival, and yet we continue to roll out the red carpet for these polluting industries. I mean, those two things really are at odds. And then when you have hurricanes hit, you often have an inadequate government response 
to help those who have been devastated by the hurricane, right? We've heard reports of a mobile home community in uh, Louisiana, in the parish that was hit badly, where people's homes in, you know, what's, I believe, a low-income community were just destroyed, um, you know, is... FEMA going to come in and help some of these folks, a, a government that is led by a president who claims he doesn't believe in government uh, role in the lives of people, uh, you know, I imagine is not necessarily going to step up to the plate. Yeah, it doesn't seem hopeful. I don't know about that particular situation, mm -hmm. but, but the wheels of government are certainly not turning efficiently under this administration. Our governor happily uh, is is more organized than our federal government government is. Um, his name is John Bell Edwards. He takes these kinds of things seriously. His response to the pandemic has been good, and he beat one of these right wing kind of nutcakes who fashioned himself as a Trump Jr. And we're all really grateful to that for that in a time like this. But the bottom line is, again, you can't on the one hand claim to be somebody who protects communities in times of hurricanes, while at the same time green lighting these projects that would just exacerbate climate change. It, it just doesn't go together. And I think what is encouraging in our state is that you have leadership from regular people like the people in St. James, Pastor Harry Joseph, Sharon Levine, a number of people there are saying that we need to have a moratorium on any future facilities. And, and that is where the real leadership is coming from in this state. And I imagine that it's going to be a situation where we, the people, have to lead for years on this, and eventually our government will catch up and do the right thing. As the as Hurricane Laura was hitting the state of Louisiana, the Republican National Convention was playing out over four days with no agenda other than backing Trump's so-called America First plan. Uh, and the uh, convention started out with, uh, on, the, on the day that uh, Hurricane Laura was making news, Vice President Mike Pence sent his thoughts and prayers to the people of Louisiana and said that the government would never abandon them. There were a couple of other references and prayers sent to Louisiana, but beyond thoughts and prayers, you know, I suppose it's like the gun violence epidemic, beyond thoughts and prayers, there was no discussion of policy changes that could um, address, you know, future potential catastrophes. There was certainly no mention of climate change, right? Yeah, it's astonishing. And I think it's important to look at who was not at the Republican National Convention. You didn't have, of course, people who, who are conservative and do acknowledge that there's climate change. A really good example is locally here in Louisiana, the district attorneys of our coastal parishes. These are conservative places. These are conservative men. They're, they're men. Most of them are white men. They're Republicans. And yet, many of these district attorneys have sued the oil industry for destruction of our coast. So at some point, ideology gives way to practicality and to reality. Here in Louisiana, we know that the oil industry is responsible for the devastation of our coast. It's not just their emissions, but it's the fact that they dug canals and they dug for pipelines through our coast, they chopped it up, they destroyed our protection from hurricanes. And so a number of local Republicans are leading the charge in court to make the oil industry pay for that destruction and pay to restore our coast. So yes, there's of course a lot of noise and pomp and sound and fury that signifies nothing at the federal level. Um, but here locally, you do have some leadership from conservative people and from Republicans. and, hmm. and Obviously, that's where we've got to get to, right? Just common sense taking over in order to save ourselves. Wow. So there's a disconnect between local uh, officials and, and the Republican Party and federal officials. Um, Trump, Absolutely. Trump has also promised uh, subsidies to the and continuing subsidies to the fossil fuel industry. And during the pandemic, he has insisted on pouring more money on bailing out the oil and gas industry. Do you see that in Louisiana as, as propping up the same companies that are devastating the, the Louisiana landscape? Absolutely. You know, these, these companies only exist in, in any sort of really robust form because they're get, getting government money. And yet, let's look what happened with ExxonMobil this week, right? They fell out of the, of the index of the most powerful, the richest companies on earth. And that is an amazing thing. If you look at energy stocks, 
over the last decade and compare them to technology or to, to many other sectors, their, their trajectory is down, 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 while other sectors are up. And so certainly a character like Trump may be trying to prop it up. But again, we have reality. Reality is saying that these companies aren't worth as much, that their, that their business plan, their idea of a future isn't worth as much. They're just crazy trying to get all the frat gas they can, but they've created a glut for themselves. And so again, reality is catching up. Now, will they take us all down with us before it does? That's the question. And as you and I are talking, there is news breaking that there are 22 people hospitalized in Port Arthur and three people dead, all due to possible carbon monoxide poisoning. Now, it's not clear if there, you know, if, if this is linked to a specific um, uh, a devastation from Hurricane Laura, but that is what it is apparently being. Um, uh, cast as, and I'm wondering if you know anything about this, and of course the, the hurricane is heading towards Texas uh, and, and other states as well. This is Port Arthur, Texas. I don't know I anything. Say. Yeah, I don't. I know Port Arthur, and I have dear some dear friends in Port Arthur, and I have a good colleague there. I don't know anything about this particular incident. You know, other than to say that that is a town that really has in some way been abandoned and industry has taken over. Uh, certainly the black community there has been devastated. And when we talk about Black Lives Matter, it extends into this arena, into the idea of who lives on the fence line of these petrochemical plants. Where do they decide to site, right? They site in historically black neighborhoods, and that's not right. Mm -hmm. Uh, and uh, the hurricane is, is still active as you and I are speaking. It is heading into other states. It's bringing massive amounts of rain. Again, even just rain, even if it's not a ferocious storm that's landing at 150 miles per hour, even these slow-moving storms, the kind that we've seen in recent years, can be potentially dangerous uh, with floodwaters um, having to do with chemical contamination causing damage as well, right? There's, there's long-term damage that may be invisible now, but that might be something that will be documented later, years later. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the BP disaster shows that. We're, we're now getting studies about how truly devastated our fisheries are, what it has done to the ocean floor. You know, it, it, it's just really heartbreaking and tragic. And I will say in terms of the, the storm continuing to be a viable storm, I was on the phone yesterday, I was on the phone with uh, Velma White of Shreveport, Louisiana, who's long been a leader there in the environmental justice community, and they're preparing for a hurricane. Now, this is in North Louisiana, you know, several hundred miles inland. This is not a place that has ever experienced hurricanes. Wow. They don't expect to have tropical storms, and so it's just another example of the fact that these storms are getting worse, and they're going places where really they've never been before. Oh, wow. So, th so th and I imagine that this is an area that's also not very prepared then for hurricanes, because those who live in the path and the traditional part path of hurricanes, you know, have some protections built up over the years. But if it's hitting p communities that are not even prepared for it, that's pretty stunning and, and potentially extremely dangerous. And this is, I imagine, climate change. Sure. I, you know, I think what climate scientists tell us is that not only will storms get worse, but because they're so ferocious, they will maintain, maintain their power inland in a way that they never did before. And so, yeah, this is, this is again, it, it's climate induced and you know, whatever you wanna call it. Uh, here in Louisiana, people don't wanna talk about climate change, but they sure are interested in talking about flooding and they, they're, we're concerned about flooding and we wanna stop it. And the way we stop flooding is to have a moratorium on these petrochemical plants. We don't need one more. We don't need any more expansions. That is our response here. We want a moratorium and then a pivot to some different kinds of economic drivers. Well, Anne, give out the website where people can find out more about the work you do at the Louisiana Bucket Brigade. Yes, we are at labucketbrigade.org. LA is not Los Angeles. It is <laughs> short for Louisiana. labucketbrigade.org. And, and you can meet several of the communities that we collaborate with and, and read about a lot of the community leaders. Uh, we have great partners. Our history and our mission is to, is to partner with the communities that are most impacted by the petrochemical industry here in Louisiana. So we do encourage people to, to learn more at labucketbrigade.org. We'll post a link to that from our website. And thanks so much for joining us. 
Thank you. Thanks a lot for being interested. We appreciate your support. My guest has been Ann Rolfes, founding director of the Louisiana Bucket Brigade. We've been discussing the devastation left by Hurricane Laura. I'm Sonali Kohatka. We're online at risingupatsonali.com, where you can sign up for our daily newsletter, find our audio podcast on iTunes and Spotify. KPFK Pacifica Radio. This is Rising Up with Sonali and I'm your host Sonali Kolhatkar. You can watch this program on Free Speech TV and listen to it on Pacifica Radio stations and affiliates nationwide. Racial disparities in COVID-19 infections and deaths are stark, especially with black and brown communities. Now, even as the Republican Party seeks to downplay the pandemic or act as though it's in the past, disturbing statistics show that it continues to ravage communities of color. Today, we'll focus on Latinos in the US who, like black Americans, are disproportionately impacted. In the state of California, which has the largest Latino population in the nation, this demographic is particularly hard hit. A new UCLA study found that virus-related deaths among working-age Latino adults in California has multiplied disturbingly. Key to this grim conclusion is that Latinos are disproportionately represented in essential workforces and so face higher risk rates of exposure. My guest is Manuel Pastor, director of USC's Equity Research Institute. He's also a member of Governor Gavin Newsom's Task Force on Business and Jobs Recovery, tasked with ensuring statewide COVID recovery plans prioritize economic and racial equity. Welcome to the program, uh, Manuel. Glad to be with you again, Sonali. So first, how seriously are Latinos impacted both nationwide, but even specifically in California, where we have the largest Latino population? Um, this is a, a demographic that is unfortunately left out of the, the national discourse uh, on these issues usually. Well, it's actually a pretty dramatic, <laughs> excuse me, disproportionate impact. So uh, Latinos who are far less than a majority of the California population are 60% of the cases. And what's remarkable about that is uh, it's a younger population as well. So originally there were a lot of concerns about the way in which COVID was sort of ripping its way through older populations in nursing homes. Uh, but at the beginning of the pandemic in California, about 30% of the cases were Latino. Now about 60% of the cases are Latino. And the age-adjusted mortality rates, that is trying to take account uh, the age structure of the white population, the black population, the Latino population, and other ethnic populations. The black mortality rate, age-adjusted, is about twice that of the white population, and the Latino population is actually even higher than that. Interestingly, the population that's the most significantly disparate in terms of the age-adjusted mortality is the Pacific Islander population. And there's a couple of different factors which are driving this, both particularly for the Latinos and the Pacific Islanders. Latinos tend to be over-indexed in what's uh, called essential work, that is agricultural work, uh, logistics, uh, grocery store clerks, the kind of work that requires people to be there right now and actually be overexposed uh, and proximate to a lot of people at work. Second big factor is that Latinos tend to be in overcrowded households. Uh, that is multi-generational people sharing households, overcrowded conditions, which if one person gets sick from them going to work, it winds up ripping its way through an entire family. And third, Latinos tend to be well overrepresented in the undocumented population. And the reason why that's important is because the undocumented population is 
uh, winding up going to work because they cannot access unemployment insurance or the federal relief checks. And they tend to, when they go back to their households that are overcrowded, send that going through the household and tend to be very fearful of interacting with community testing programs and uh, public health departments because of the worries about being uh, basically called out for being undocumented and running the risk of deportation. So uh, three months ago, uh, I mean, literally at the end of March, I was predicting that this was going to shift its way from wider and wealthier communities that uh, tended to uh, have more uh, contact with international travelers and uh, international travel themselves. It would begin to rip its way through this community that was highly vulnerable because of its over-indexing, meaning over-concentration in essential work, because of the nature of its living conditions, tending to be in overcrowded households, and because of the fact that it was uh, much more likely to be undocumented and therefore vulnerable. This is one of those sad predictions where I wish I hadn't been right, but it's what has taken place in the state of California. What about farm workers, particularly in the central area, Central Valley area of California? This is a you know, community that is undocumented, low income, vulnerable, and yeah, you know, when you talk about essential, is literally ensuring that Americans are fed. Yes, and I think that originally one of the things that was paid attention to, again, you need to think about essential risk that's also in close proximity to other people, so you could wind up uh, having lots of infections. That was certainly the case with meatpacking plants, and we saw big outbreaks in California and also in the Midwest amongst Latino immigrant workers in meatpacking plants, essential work also in close proximity. One of the thoughts about agricultural work was that people might be physically separated enough so that outbreaks wouldn't occur. But you need to understand that uh, the workers who are in agriculture, they're often car sharing on their way to do work, even if they're physically separated when they're doing the picking, or they're uh, being brought to work in uh, transit like buses, which brings them into close proximity, and they tend to live in farm labor situations where there's a lot of people living in close proximity. So if one person gets it, even if they're not catching it through picking strawberries, they're going to catch it by the way they're getting to the strawberry fields and to the way that they're living together. And those parts of their living experience were not fully taken into account. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's really been uh, a situation where, uh, you know, the state in some ways has tried, uh, but it is not fully take into account the real lived experience of agricultural workers, grocery store workers, logistic workers, and others. Right. I mean, when you, the, the issue of essential workers is so important to this conversation in the service industry, in farm work, in, you know, the landscape industry, the construction industry, you name, you know, the grocery and retail industries, Latinos are, and low-income Latinos, those poorly paid jobs are largely filled in, you know, disproportionate amounts to their population by Latinos. Um, so, so the exposure is higher. Yeah, very much so. Let me make one other point, which I think is really, really critical, which is that Latinos and African Americans are both um, over-indexed, meaning over-concentrated in essential high-risk jobs, meaning the jobs where the kind of uh, contact and transmission you're talking about occurs. They were also both highly indexed in uh, high-contact, non-essential uh, uh, occupations or industries like uh, hospitality and restaurants. Mm. So they've simultaneously been hard hit by COVID at work and by being unemployed as a result of being in those uh, industries that got shut down early in which there's been a stop and start uh, pattern to bringing people back. So it's been both ends of the economic and health scissors. That is uh, being exposed at work because you're in essential work and being finding yourself more likely to be laid off um, as a result of uh, uh, being in these industries like restaurant and hospitality. In fact, for example, black workers 
50% of black, the black workforce um, that was working as of February 2020 in California has since February 2020 filed for unemployment insurance claims. Wow. Uh, that's a result of people who were in those kind of jobs I'm talking about, but also who tended to be in gig employment. One of the things that has happened as a result of the federal relief package is that in addition to people who could file for regular unemployment, people were receiving W-2s because they had sort of regular jobs. Uh, people who were also in gig employment uh, became eligible for what's called pandemic unemployment assistance. And so black workers really were over-indexed in both the uh, restaurant and hospitality but also in the gig and precarious unemployment. Um, Latino workers, not so much in terms of their unemployment claims because so many people uh, were undocumented and therefore not eligible to apply for either UI regular unemployment insurance claims, the pandemic unemployment insurance, and they were frozen out of the federal relief checks because if you were in a family if you yourself are undocumented, even if you are filing uh, and paying taxes through uh, filing with what's called an individual taxpayer identification number, the Federal CARES Act said that anybody filing through that, uh, they were ineligible. And if they were part of a family where the two uh, the folks filing jointly, one had a social security number, meaning they were documented or a US citizen and they filed, but they were filing jointly with somebody who had an ITIN, individual taxpayer identification number, signaling they were undocumented. That entire family unit and their children were rendered uh, ineligible for the CARES Act. So they were really left stranded. You know, in many ways to kind of step back from the details we've been going through, uh, COVID is the disease that revealed our illness, our illness of precarious employment, our illness of structural racism in terms of who was over-indexed and what kinds of work, and our illness uh, in terms of not having dealt with giving all immigrants the fundamental rights they deserve for working and contributing to this country. So really, it's just kind of lifted the veil on the... Uh, uh, kinds of patterns of inequality that we had before. And that lifting of the veil has been driven home by the moment of racial reckoning that we've had about understanding the police violence that's been unleashed against um, a, uh, a Jacob Blake most uh, recently, but a George Floyd a uh, little bit further toward the beginning of the pandemic. I want to ask you about the pre-existing health conditions impacting uh, Latinos uh, that might also, on top of everything we've been saying, make them vulnerable. You know, there's the infection rates, then there's the death rates, you know, the being able to survive the disease versus um, not being able to survive the disease, um, systemic racism, poor access to uh, fresh, healthy food, poor access to proper health care can all leave uh, individuals vulnerable to a disease like COVID-19. Is that also a factor when it comes to Latino populations? It is definitely a factor with looking at the uh, death rates, particularly the age-adjusted death rates. It's a more profound factor in the Black community right. or the kind of combination of hypertension, which actually is just a feature of being black in America, as the last couple of months have been showing us, um, obesity, diabetes, and all of those are actually things that come from structural factors like food deserts, lack of park space, and again, the stress of being black in America. But those also operate in the Latino community. I mean, the stress of uh, worrying about whether or not when you come home, your mother or father are going to have been deported by an ISCON, uh, immigration enforcement, uh, immigration and customs enforcement regime gone crazy, particularly under uh, President Trump. Uh, there's also all of those issues of food deserts and not having access to park space also affect the Latino community. One other very special factor that affects the Latino community is the access, lack of access to health insurance and health care. A lot of that has to do with um, uh, you know, the ways in which racism for US born folks has played out in the United States, but also with immigrants 
who themselves might be undocumented and therefore worried about accessing what health insurance that might even be available in terms of emergency health insurance. But also we know that there's lots of families where they're mixed status families and they're very concerned that if they exercise their right to be able to uh, uh, get uh, Medi-Cal, which is the California version of Medicaid, for a family member who might be a legal immigrant, they're worried that that's going to expose their family member who is undocumented or count against them later on when they're moving to the issues of naturalization. Uh, so these are real, real issues that lead uh, Latino immigrants to be reluctant to tap into resources that might actually be available for them. So speaking of health insurance, I'd love to get into a little bit of a political discussion, if you don't mind. On August 21st, Cristina Jimenez Moreta, an immigrant justice activist, wrote an op-ed in the New York Times uh, about the Democratic National Convention called The Voices Missing from the Convention. And she was pointing out that, you know, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez just got a little over a minute to speak. Julian Castro was not even uh, in, invited. Uh, and, and she pointed out that uh, they, there was an enthusiasm gap for Joe Biden, even compared to Hillary Clinton from four years ago. And one reason, according to this writer, was that you have a Latino community that is struggling with issues of healthcare, struggling with COVID-19, lack of access to insurance, and you have a presidential candidate that's being offered to them who refuses to back Medicare for all. There was a very enthusiastic response to the Bernie Sanders campaign from the Latino community, primarily around those sorts of bold government plans like Medicare for all that Sanders backed. And I'm wondering if you think that these are the kinds of political questions we need to be, you know, asking presidential candidates. How are you going to be off, you know, ensuring that everybody has health care, not just access or opportunity, but health care? I think it's a very critical set of issues to ask the presidential candidates. And one of the things I think that the COVID crisis has revealed is the basic public health principle that to protect ourselves, we have to protect everyone. So one of the reasons why many of us are wearing a mask, even if we feel our, we might be um, healthy uh, and not symptomatic, is that we're trying to protect um, others from what we might impart and asking them to do the same. And that is very much the case with health insurance. You know, the epidemic that's ravaging its way, particularly through immigrant Latino communities in California, is creating risks for everyone. And the way to have stopped that would have been to uh, really make sure that everybody had access to healthcare, as you're mentioning, through something like uh, Medicare for All, to make sure that we were forward positioning resources uh, into those communities so that people would have more than adequate access uh, to testing and by community-based health promoters, promotoras, that would be people that people could trust, that they would have access to contact tracing, again, by local community people, so it's people you trust and you don't think that you're handing names over to someone who's going to deport uh, the person that you work with, but rather is going to help to track the course of the disease. And what uh, we need to do is not testing parity, but testing equity. Equity means making sure you get resources to people who actually desperately need them. At the more political level, I do think that Biden is going to need to do much more with the Latino community. And it's a lot more than developing ads in Spanish. This is also a younger community, which is much more intersectional and very much cares about issues like Black Lives Matter, being, that are, that's being raised by Black Lives Matter around policing, but it also cares around education, it also cares around college student debt, which is incredibly important to younger Latinos, and it very much cares about uh, full and comprehensive immigration reform and Medicare for all. I think the biggest mistake that the Biden uh, campaign could make, particularly if they win, is the mistake that Obama made after he won, which is to postpone comprehensive immigration reform and making sure that all immigrants wind up having a place in America. It's a risk they're running. Um, they assume that they have this vote because this vote is not going to vote, uh, perhaps be enthusiastic, certainly, about voting for Donald Trump. But the margin of enthusiasm among Latino voters is going to be decisive in Arizona, and it may actually also be decisive in Texas, 
not so much in whether or not Biden wins in that state, but whether or not it's a competitive race that forces the Republicans to sink resources in that state to protect it. And it's going to be very decisive in unexpected places where, you know, if there are Latinos in Wisconsin, there are Latinos in Michigan, there are Latinos in Iowa, and there's a significant Latino presence in Colorado in engaging that part of the electorate will be very crucial to what happens in November 2020. Right. A recent PBS NPR poll found that only 59 percent of Latinos said they would back Biden compared to 66 percent who said they would back Hillary Clinton in 2016. I, I want to pick up on what you were saying earlier about access to testing and contact tracing. You know, we hear from the White House how uh, carefully President Trump is being protected with everybody being tested, contact traced. And in fact, in several people have been you know, found to be asymptomatically infected by the disease right before they met Trump because they're doing such rigorous testing. Those sorts of approaches are apparently not good enough for the rest of the country. Particularly in California, though, what is the access to testing, to free testing, to safe testing, and also contact tracing that the Latino community has? Um, you know, the CDC just changed its guidelines saying people who might be exposed but asymptomatic shouldn't bother getting testing tested, which is pretty disturbing. Uh, but here, because Latinos are so disproportionately represented in essential work, not only are they more exposed, but then if they're exposed, they're going to be infecting others. Um, they should, there should be very very systematic testing and contact tracing, right? Well, I think that's absolutely right. Just to look back to the politics for a moment and then answer that question, I think one thing that's a big difference between Hillary Clinton and uh, Joe Biden is Clinton put in the work with the Latino community before. Hmm. Uh, whether or not, um, you know, uh, neither of those two are uh, have politics that are are my politics, but I would acknowledge that Clinton put in the work building relationships and ties, particularly to traditional Latino leaders, and therefore might generate some enthusiasm. Biden does not have that history, and he's got a very short runway to be able to improve on that. Uh, on the question of uh, testing, I think that the state of California is finally getting it. This week, uh, the state of California is signing its own agreement uh, with a testing company in uh, Massachusetts. They're also trying to accelerate the, the quick turnaround kind of testing. And most fundamentally, there's been a realization that what you need to do is to get ahead of the problem. You know, there's one thing to take a look at where the disease has been and say, oh gosh, we've got to go to nursing homes. It's another to take a look at where the disease is heading. And it was entirely predictable that, and I say this partly because I was the one who was predicting that, <laughs> right. that a community that was over-indexed in essential work, over-indexed in living in overcrowded housing, and over-indexed in being undocumented, which means that you're going to take the kind of risks that you need to do to feed your family because you're not getting any assistance from the government to make sure that you stay home. It was entirely predictable that this is where the disease would go, and this is where the disease has gone. And I feel like that message has finally gotten to um, the uh, Newsom administration and that they are planning on getting much more aggressive about, and this has happened in LA County where the message has finally gotten through to the uh, to County Department of Public Health that what we need to do is to make sure that we've got the testing, contact tracing and education uh, in these communities and also the space for people to quarantine so that if they get sick, they do not wind up staying in an overcrowded household uh, infecting other family members or household members. And that's going to require a very different kind of regime. You cannot have public health officials walk into a community. Our experience, for example, in Los Angeles is that those um, uh, health clinics that have been there for a long time and built up public trust, they have an excess demand for the tests that are there. Those ones that have popped up recently and are run just by the Department of Health, they don't have that kind of demand. And in fact, they wind up people not trusting them, people not going there. So you really need to put resources into, I mean, I think you know this, Sally, what they're called promotora campaigns, local community uh, health promoters. Right. This high level of case rate and high level of death rate is not a function of Latinos somehow engaging in riskier behavior. Which is what it's conservatives have said uh, to explain it. Well, and that might be the case uh, for, you know, uh, 
folks who are rushing to bars, but that's not what's going on with Latinos. It- Thank you so much, Manuel, and good luck to you. Thank you. My guest has been Dr. Manuel Pastor, director of the University of Southern California's Equity Research Institute. He's also a member of California Governor Gavin Newsom's Task Force on Business and Jobs Recovery, tasked with ensuring statewide COVID recovery plans prioritize economic and racial equity. We've been discussing the impact of the coronavirus on Latinos in California and the United States at large. I'm Sonali Kolhatkar. We're online at risingupwithsonali.com, where you can sign up for our daily newsletter. Also, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at RU with Sonali. Rising Up with Sonali is hosted, written, and executive produced by Sonali Kohatkar. Anna Bus is the producer, technical director, and web and social media supervisor. Our theme music is by Grammy award-winning band Gets Up. Like us on Facebook.com slash RU with Sonali. That's the letters RU with Sonali. And follow us on Twitter.com slash RU with Sonali. Our website is risingupwithsonali.com, where you can find all our programs archived and where you can get direct access to all our video and audio files. Portland on 90.7 FM and streaming online at kboo.fm. Kboo Community Radio is a proud sponsor of Boss Radio presents our virtual auction fundraiser Con La Voz Firme, the 